This is a Federal News Network podcast. Expenses rose, but so did financial liquidity. That sort of summarizes what happened to the U.S. Postal Service throughout the pandemic. Here with more on what a detailed look at the USPS found, the cost and pricing audit director for its Office of Inspector General, Sherry Fullwood. Ms. Fullwood, good to have you on. Good morning. So everyone kind of had the sense that there would be a financial impact, probably many of them, on the Postal Service from the pandemic. And that's what you were trying to find out in general? Generally speaking, yes. All right. And tell us basically what you found out here. Well, this report focused on three primary areas, and that was the increase in expenses, how the Postal Service attributed the expenses to products in lieu of the restrictions for social distancing and not being able to get into the plants to track the way the mail is being moved around and the impact on liquidity. Our liquidity assessment was in line with what the Postal Service reported. We did find that the way they developed supplemental processes to identify the mail movement and therefore attribute the costs to the products. And the biggest finding was with regards to the expenses in terms of tracking and validation, where we noted that there were some gaps in how the expenses were tracked and reported and validated. And let's talk about those expenses for the moment. What expenses tended to rise the most? Where do they have to pay the bill here for the pandemic? It was a little bit of a mixed bag. And what we found changed, not drastically, but somewhat when they Based on our report, they basically built a more robust workbook that better tracked and validated the expenses from what we originally reviewed at the beginning of the report. But when we started looking at it, the major cost drivers were moving mail from air to surface because a lot of the air wasn't as available. Um, And then the increase in parcels meant that there's less space on the vehicle, so there's an increase in transportation costs due to moving more packages than actual mail. Also, there was a PP&E, which is obviously something that no one had prepared for because we don't have gloves and, you know, and mass volume laying around and masks and things like that. That was another major cost driver. And then the change in employee availability where you had less people in the plants, but the work was actually increasing with the increased parcel volume and having to now find staff because a lot of people were out due to COVID. And so you had to do a lot of new hiring and training and things like that. So pretty much across the board then, everything connected with getting the mail delivered. And yet the liquidity of the Postal Service went up, and that's been a long-term issue for them. What did you find with respect to liquidity, and how did that happen? Liquidity primarily rose based on several factors. One, the Postal Service had defaulted on $7.8 billion in retiree payments. They deferred their Social Security taxes. In an agreement that was set to expire in April of 2020, they borrowed $3.4 billion based on that agreement, not knowing what was going to happen because that was at the beginning of the pandemic. They also reduced a lot of planned capital expenditures, and the increase in parcel volume helped drive some revenue increases in that area. So it was a combination of a lot of things they did earlier on, I would say, in the pandemic that allowed their liquidity to be higher than anticipated. We are speaking with Sherry Fullwood. She's Cost and Pricing Audit Director for the Office of Inspector General at the Postal Service. And you mentioned the expenses rose, the liquidity rose, but there were issues with how the Postal Service could assign the cost increases to the specific products that they offer? Is that what you were trying to explain? So with regards to the how they assign the costs of products, typically what happens is 
They have people that go into the plants. They go look at the transportation vehicles. There are people that are sampling the mail as it moves. And based on that sample, they can kind of determine what percentage of various costs. Like if I were sampling a mail carrier, I can then say, okay, this mail carrier is doing 10% of this type of mail and 20% of that type of mail. And I'm very much trying to make this a, an easier example for people to follow. It's a lot more detailed than that. But they're sampling the mail to see that, how that mail is moving. And then they're saying, okay, well, mail carrier labor costs are X. And based on what they were actually carrying, we can determine what percentages of their labor costs are going to be attributed to that product. So in other words, in normal times, a mail truck has a load of stuff. There's packages, there's first-class mail, there's commercial mail, there's periodicals, Mm -hmm. and they are able to figure out what percentage each type of product is and then assign the total cost of that mail run, say, the gasoline and the labor and so forth, to the various classes of products in proportion to how they're loaded on the truck? Theoretically, yes. And it wouldn't be the total because, there's, like I said, there are some other factors that go into it, but the portion of those costs that are determined to be borne by mail products would then be divvied up between the mail products based on those percentages. The technicians that normally sample the mail weren't able to always get in to sample the mail due to social distancing and other COVID restrictions, you know, for the safety of them as well. And so what they did was they were able to use um, one of their other data systems to get the data that they needed so that they could then make sure they had enough samples, so to speak, to attribute the cost to the products. Got it. So it sounds like that could maybe be a permanent workaround if it's accurate. They're evaluating it now to see if that is something that they can put into place on a permanent basis, and that would be utilizing data from a system as opposed to people all touching the mail. Yeah, because every piece of mail has a barcode. It seems like that might be a clue as to where you could find out that particular data of what type of mail it is and therefore what the costs attributed to it might be. Yes, that is what they're evaluating now. And then they would have to propose that with the PRC for approval. So adding this all up, what are your main recommendations for the Postal Service? Our main recommendations were that the largest concern that we had and what we recommended was that there wasn't a documented process. They had processes in place for like how to track and validate expenses due to natural disasters or smaller local unanticipated events. They did not have anything in place for a nationwide exigent event, whether it be a pandemic or other crises. So it took some time to kind of develop something that made sense. And what they were doing originally was everyone was just kind of grabbing their costs from the various places and estimating costs, but uniformity wasn't there. So our recommendation was to develop a uniform process that somebody can kind of follow to say, okay, if something happens, particularly on a larger scale level, How should we be tracking these costs? How should we validate these costs? So there's a little bit of a roadmap to follow in the future so people don't have to pivot when something unexpected comes up. And they went along with the recommendations? They agreed with you? They did agree with us, and they have developed a stronger workbook. They have shared it with us. We have looked through it. We have not assessed it or audited it, but just on the face of what we saw, it is an improvement from what they gave to us at the beginning of this audit. And when they are completed, they would give that to us for the review to close out the recommendations. All right. Sherry Fullwood is Cost and Pricing Audit Director for the Office of Inspector General at the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you very much. Have a good day. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. 
my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling. Uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.